Morning, everybody. Morning, Jack. You doing all right? Man, yesterday was absolutely full on, wasn't it? It was amazing. It was such a good day. I'm totally knackering. It was like uh, when we went, I went back to Graham and Nikki's. We were up till half 12. And then, yeah, I'm not the only one with bleary eyes this morning looking around. It's, uh, and Graham's gone down like three octaves since last night. <laughs> Like, seriously, it was like, close your eyes in worship. It's like having Barry White on backing vocals this morning. <laughs> it was amazing. There must have been some serious reworking of those songs. Um, gosh. But, uh, yeah, we were thinking yesterday about how God's resourcing a new thing in this church. And, you know, he's resourcing you with fresh faith for friends and family and a fresh outpouring of the Spirit and a fresh call to build and fresh encounters with his heart. God's doing something fresh. And uh, he wants to keep doing something fresh as you move forward together. And this morning, we're just going to think about how God wants to give you fresh courage for change, fresh courage in a season of change, because you can't really avoid change seasons in life, can you? You know, life is just full of change. For as long as you're alive, you're going to change. The people around you are going to change. Your circumstances are going to change. You know, change is here to stay and all of that. You're going to go through change. I was chatting to Emily at the start. Like, I got to know Emily when she was 18, and then we were just kind of like working out how many years have gone by since we got to know one another. Life is full of change, and a lot of that change happens slowly, doesn't it? It goes slowly. But then sometimes you know super clearly that you are in a, a big season of change. Moving house, getting married, starting a new job, having a kid, retirement, bereavement. You know when those things are happening to you, don't you? It's a change season. And for you guys as a church, new people joining, a new leadership team, new ministry starting, it's a really obvious and significant change season for the church, it is. And navigating those kind of big change seasons well requires courage. And so where can we get that kind of courage? Where can you get the courage you need to do well in those big change seasons when they come your way? Do you know, in the first hundred years after the resurrection of Jesus, the, the message of the resurrection just kind of exploded across Europe. And we touched on this a little bit yesterday, but that message and the love shown by the people who brought it had an impact on literally millions of people. So much so that by the end of the third century, most of the people in the Roman Empire had become Christians, which I still find totally staggering. And not surprisingly, you know, a movement like that also met with huge resistance, especially to its leaders. And towards the end of his life, Paul, who was one of those leaders, wrote down his reflections on what that was like for him, living through that. He says that nine times he was beaten within an inch of his life. Three times he was shipwrecked. Numerous times he'd gone without food and water and sleep, hiding from the people who wanted to take his life. And in his life, one of the things that he had to learn was how to navigate enormous change. Because he went through seasons of incredible success and adulation even, but also long seasons of rejection and all kinds of suffering. And yet in the middle of all of that chaos and change, he managed to keep moving forward with courage. And when you get to the end of Paul's story, he knows that he's about to be executed soon. And so he sits down in prison and he writes a personal letter to his friend Timothy. But 
you know, because it's a personal letter, we're going to read a bit of it, but there's quite a lot of sharing news, and he does quite a lot of shout-outs to his mates, actually. But he's also encouraging Timothy to keep moving forward after he's gone. And as he writes all of that, he lets you in on four kind of key truths that have made the difference for him in facing change with courage. Let's have a look at this. This is from um, the end of Paul's letter, second letter to Timothy. This is how he ends. He says this. I need to read this. He says, but as for you, Timothy, keep on your watch. Never give up. Keep your head in all situations. Accept the hard times along with the good. Keep telling people the good news about Jesus with passion. Do a thorough job as God's servant. Here we go. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearance. Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus went to Dalmatia. Only Luke is left with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support. Everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you, and so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit, and grace be with you all. So, four great truths that are tucked away in here that enable Paul to face change with courage. He says this, he says, life is a struggle. He says, death is a journey. God's goodness can't be stopped. And in the end, you only need one thing. And man, each one of these four is mega. Like these are, these are mega truths for facing change with courage. Let's have a look at these four together. Firstly then, Paul says life is a struggle. Because looking back on his life, he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. And the word he uses for fight is the Greek word for a wrestling match, agaion, which is the word we, we get our word agony from. In other words, it's a word that means a painful struggle. He says, look, I've fought the painful struggle. But the race is also a painful struggle because it's something that tests you to your limits. It's a struggle. If you go to uh, the Lake District that, you know, you probably realize Ros and I go a fair bit, but if you go to Lake Windermere, on the shore of Lake Windermere, you find a town, and out of that town comes a road that goes up and over one of the really high passes in the Lake District, the Kirkstone Pass. And that road is so steep and so winding that the name of that road is The Struggle. In fact, when you turn onto that road, you see the sign with the name of that road. And 
The reason why it's a struggle is just because that road is so steep that in the olden days, you know, if you were going up there with your donkey or whatever, and you didn't struggle, you weren't going to get to the top. You were going to kind of slide right back down, right back down into the water eventually. In other words, it was so steep, you wouldn't get to the top unless you were struggling. And so what does Paul mean when he says that life is a struggle? Because what do you immediately think of when you hear that? Straight away you think, yeah, I, I know what he's saying. Like Life's hard. You know, there are lots of setbacks and discouragements and disappointments. You know, the kind of famous saying, life is hard and then you die. Do you know that's not what he's talking about? Life is challenging in lots of ways, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about how it feels to try and live for Jesus. He's talking about how it feels when you're trying to live right and do right. He's not talking about some general kind of struggle. He's talking about the deliberate struggle, a struggle that you have to choose to enter into and something that most people don't choose to enter into actually. But without which, if you don't struggle and fight this fight, you're going to find yourself in your life slipping backwards and downwards. He's saying to be a Christian is to be an athlete, it's to be a wrestler, it's to be a struggler, a runner. You have to train like an athlete. And so it's a struggle that's going to affect your daily life. Because, you know, when athletes are training, what, what happens? They have to learn, don't they, how to say no to all of their natural impulses. You know, you're out for a meal and you see the sticky toffee pudding and you think, you know, why, why not? An athlete has to learn to say, nope, can't, can't eat that. Or you're at home and a friend texts you at 9 p.m., do you want to go out for a cheeky late beer? And you think, why not? An athlete has to learn to say, no, I've got to go to bed early. An athlete has to learn how to say no to all those natural impulses. They have to learn how to struggle against their own desires and how to win. How to win. And Paul's saying that's what it's like to live as a Christian. He's saying very often that's how it feels when you're living for Jesus. It's a struggle. But if you don't struggle, you're going to find yourself slipping backwards. Martin Luther, who was one of the greatest Christian thinkers in history, was trying to describe the struggle. And he said that our problem is that we are, and this is Latin, and you know, I, I didn't translate this myself. Uh, although I did do a year of Latin at school, not that you guys need to know that. But um, <laughs> he said, our great struggle is this, we are homo incurvatus in se, which means humanity curved in on itself. In other words, he said, for each one of us, our problem is just that we are naturally so self-centered that we're, we're completely curved in on ourselves. And if we don't find a way to fight that somehow, then as time goes on, we're just going to get curved up tighter and tighter until we end up like a hard little ball, not capable of real love, not capable of real friendship, because we're just so taken up by our own needs and our own desires. And that description always sounds to me exactly like Gollum in Lord of the Rings because Gollum starts life as Smeagol, doesn't he? But when he finds the ring, he makes that the center of his whole existence. His whole being curves in on itself around the ring and his need for the ring and his obsession with it. And we all have something like that. We all have something like the ring that we've told ourselves we have to have in order to be happy. Something that we put right at the center of our lives and that curves us in on ourselves so that unless we struggle, we're in danger of ending up like Gollum, incapable of love and incapable of our own flourishing, actually. 
C.S. Lewis says every time you make those little selfish choices, you put a little mark on your soul, and that little mark makes it just that bit easier to be selfish the next time. And then that bit easier to be selfish the time after that. He says you're shrinking with all those little choices. You're shrinking. He says, basically, like in every situation, when you, when you meet somebody... When you go into any meeting, every day, every hour, even this morning, like at church this morning, when you interact with people, you have a few seconds to choose your operating system for that interaction. One operating system is, hey, your life to serve me. And the other operating system is, no, my life to serve you. You can go into every situation asking, what can I get out of this? How can these people serve my interests? How can they support my agenda? Or in every situation, you can be asking, how can I give my life and my resources to support you right here in this moment? How can I give myself away? And for all of us, C.S. Lewis says, our default operating system is your life to support me. In every interaction, unless we're struggling, we're going we're to default into, hey, how can you serve me in this interaction? That's just what comes to us naturally. That's just, it's just what happens automatically. But if you don't struggle against that, if you just go with it and make choices based on your own needs, every time you do that, you're becoming smaller. You're curving in on yourself right down to that little point, less able to love, less able to empathize and understand other people, more filled with self-pity, defending yourself, more and more thinking, nobody understands me. I've got it so hard. And that's the struggle. That's the fight that happens every single day. And, you know, maybe you're thinking, well, what's all of this got to do with moving forward through change with courage? Everything. Everything. Because a change season presents you with a whole host of new opportunities to serve and to love and to give and grow and make a difference. But doing that doesn't come naturally and you won't step into those opportunities unless you're struggling. You'll never move forward through change well unless you're struggling this struggle. If you're not fighting, change seasons will just make you harder because because of all the risks that go with change. You'll just become more self-absorbed, more self-centered. It'll be about you and you won't be able to move forward through change with courage and joy unless you're struggling. Gosh, okay, that's the struggle. The second truth you can see that Paul gives Paul courage is this. He says, death is a journey. And so where can you see that? Do you know, it's in the same verse, in the first half of it, because do you remember, he says, I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. He says, I'm already being poured out. In other words, he's saying, look, it's almost over for me. My life's almost over. He says, the time for my departure is near. And that word, departure, was one of the Greek words for death, but it's kind of an interesting word because it's a word that actually means to untie. It's a word that was used for untying a boat so that the boat could leave and go on a journey. And so there's kind of a bittersweet flavor to it because, you know, when a boat sets off, on the one hand, that's kind of sad for the people on board because there's everything they're leaving behind. But on the other hand, it's kind of exciting because they're going into something new. They're going on a journey, on a voyage, on an adventure. Something new's coming. So there's this, he's got this mixture of like the loss and the gain that, that's there. 
And when he writes about this elsewhere, Paul reflects that amazing balance the Bible seems to hold about death. He's writing to people who've lost loved ones, and he says, I want you to grieve, but don't grieve like people without hope. See the balance. He doesn't say, don't grieve, keep your chin up, keep going. He says, you must grieve, it's right to grieve. But on the other hand, he says, don't you dare grieve without hope. Because, oh my goodness, think about the hope that Paul had. Like, you know, when Paul met Jesus for himself, the resurrected Jesus on the Damascus Road, that was the turning point of his whole life. Suddenly, everything broke open in his thinking. It was like a light went on. Because he saw that if Jesus really is raised from the dead, then now when we reach out to him, we don't just get forgiveness for all of our mess. We also get an incredible hope for the future. Because, you know, Paul saw Jesus went right through death smashing it to pieces and out the other side into a totally new kind of life and a totally new kind of body. But not only that, in the same way that God did it for Jesus, the Bible says God's going to renew the whole of his creation in exactly the same way. You know, it's hard for us to imagine. It says the world will become a place where it's not breaking down all the time and where we suffer loss in change. The world's going to become a place that goes from glory to glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Man, what a hope. And that's your future if you're trusting Jesus. And the Bible says when you finally step into that, there is going to be such a sweetness and a joy in that moment that's going to roll over you and enter into you, that there's going to be no hope that you've cherished in your life, no matter how great, that will be disappointed. There's going to be no hope that will be disappointed. There's going to be no longing that will go unfulfilled. All tears will be wiped away, the Bible says. God's going to do that. That, I mean, that is just an astonishing hope, isn't it? So grieve when you suffer loss in your life, Paul says, but do it with hope, with hope. And that's what gave Paul the courage to move forward through change, because Change seasons always involve loss in some form, don't they? You know, in a change season, some things are getting left behind, even as new things are emerging. You know, you, you lose your old house when you get a new one, don't you? And you, you lose your independence when you get married. And you lose your sanity when you have kids. It's like, <laughs> there's a gain and a loss. There's always loss and grief in some form in a time of change. And And that's one of the things that causes our selfishness and that curving in because so much of that comes from our fear of loss and our fear of missing out. But you see, Paul's saying, look, if the resurrection of Jesus really happened, and it did, then at the end of everything, you're not going to suffer loss. Something wonderful is coming to you, he says. Life is a struggle. Death is a journey. Thirdly, He says God's goodness can't be stopped. One of the great things about having kids is that you get to watch all your favorite films again with people who are seeing them for the very first time. So they're like, wow, this is amazing. And you're watching it for like the one millionth time. And you get get the extra joy of like seeing it with people who are watching it for the first time. And one of those films for me would be Jurassic Park. And I mean like the very first one, not the later ones that all just became Godzilla movies. But... um, And I love that scene in the first film where Richard Attenborough's character, who's created Jurassic Park, brings a group of scientists together to try and impress them, and he's explaining what he's done. 
He's cloned all these dinosaurs from DNA extracts, and he's explaining how they won't have any problems with population control. And he says, um, it's going to be fine, because we've only cloned females, so they, they can't breed. And Jeff Goldblum plays one of the scientists, and he's, he's pretty unimpressed. And he looks at him, and he says, that kind of control that you're attempting isn't possible. Life will not be contained. Life breaks free. It expands to new territories, and it, it crashes through barriers. And one of the other scientists says to him, are you, are you trying to say that a, a group of animals composed entirely of females will breed? And he looks back, and he says, all I'm saying is that life finds a way. It finds a way. And Paul's saying something similar to Timothy in this letter. He's saying, look, whatever happens, God's goodness always finds a way through. He's saying God's goodness can't be stopped. You can put all kinds of barriers and opposition in its way. You can use every kind of evil to try and stop it. You can put all the Christians in prison. You can kill all their leaders. It doesn't matter. God's goodness will find a way. It's the single most powerful force on the face of the earth. It's broken through everything, Paul's saying. And so where can you see that in what he writes? It's here. He says, at my first defense, I was delivered from the lion's mouth. He's in prison. He's on trial. He's telling you he's had a hearing of some kind, my first defense. But he says, I was delivered from the lion's mouth. In other words, he's saying, I wasn't executed. You know, we don't know why, but maybe there was a, a delay of some sort in the trial. Maybe he had a stay of execution, but he said, I was delivered from the lion's mouth. And then he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack. And so at first he's saying, hey, I escaped from the lion's mouth on my first defense. And that's what will always happen to me. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack. Every time they try to take me down, I'm going to escape somehow. It's going to be fine. That looks like what he's saying, doesn't it? Nothing bad's going to happen to me here. I got off the first time. I'll get off again. Don't worry about me. Do you know he's not saying that? Because we've already seen, he knows he's about to be executed. I am already being poured out. The time for my departure is near. He knows the end is coming. So what does he mean then when he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack? You have to read the rest of that sentence. And will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, God will always rescue me, sometimes from suffering, but sometimes through it. Sometimes from suffering, sometimes through suffering. And we just don't get that, do we? Because we are so sure that suffering is the thing that we always need rescuing from. That's, that's what we want to be saved from, isn't it? That's what I want to be saved from. But God's actually more concerned about something else. God's more concerned about those little marks on your soul that curve you in on yourself and that are going to turn you into Gollum if you don't do something about it. And he doesn't want that for you. He wants you to be enlarged. He wants your good and your flourishing. He wants to turn you into something great. That's his agenda for your life. That's the goal. And as he's moving you towards that goal, sometimes he rescues you from suffering. Sometimes he rescues you, he rescues you through it. In other words, sometimes he lets you go through the mill. But he takes 
even the evil and the suffering that you go through, and he uses them for a good end in your life. And look how practical this is. Look at the courage this gives Paul in the face of change and difficulty. Look how calm he is. He says, at my first defense, no one came to support me. Everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. He says, oh yeah, Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm, but the Lord knows what he needs. I don't need to try and repay. There's a peace about him, isn't there? If somebody wrongs him, he's not filled with vengeance. Something goes wrong, he's not filled with worry. Why? Because God knows. God knows. And writing about this elsewhere, Nelly was praying this this morning, he says, look, in all things, God really is working for the good of those who love him. He really is. And you're not always going to be able to see that at the time, but Paul's saying when you get to the end, you will look back on your life and you'll see that in all things, God was working. He's saying, look, right now, you're looking at the back of the tapestry. You're looking at the mess of threads. And so very often you feel like all you can see are the disappointments and the rejections and your own failures. But when you get to the end, God is going to turn the tapestry of your life over. And you'll see there is no thread of your life that's been left unwoven. Even the pain and the suffering and the disappointments, it all mattered. It all counted. You'll see how God was weaving all of that together for your good and for his glory. And the beauty of what God has been making through all of the mess and the struggle is going to take your breath away. It will. And if you can really take hold of the truth of that now, it will change and heal the way you think about every aspect of your life. It will heal the way you respond to the loss that comes with change. So you don't need to keep making those defensive, selfish choices all the time or try and protect yourself. It'll enable you to go through change with courage. In your life, God's goodness cannot be stopped. Wow. What a truth that is. So we've said life is a struggle. Death is a journey. The goodness of God can't be stopped. How are you doing? Can you manage one more? Can we do one more? Let's do this. Fourthly then, lastly, in the end, Paul says you only need one thing. And so what's that? Friendship with Jesus. Because he says this, at my first defense, everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and he gave me strength. What's the one thing Paul needed above everything else to move through change with courage? Is this. Friendship with Jesus. And notice, he doesn't just say some kind of general belief in God. He's talking about a real relationship. He's talking about a friendship. So he can say, look, in my hour of greatest need, I felt him at my side. I felt Jesus coming near to me and he gave me strength. He gave me strength. You see, he's not just saying, well, of course God was with me. God's everywhere, isn't he? He's at the top of the mountain. He's, he's at the bottom of the oceans. Now he's saying, God was with me. I felt him there with me, standing at my side, loving me, giving me strength. The Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. And do you know, your 20s, this church seems to be mainly made up of people in their 30s. There's like, there's, the average, I don't know, we look at all, when all the kids are in the room, it's like, you know, everyone's about... The average age must be about nine. And then when the kids go out of the room, the average age must be about 32 or something. I don't know, 35. But um, 
Your 20s, I think, are absolutely massive change season because maybe the most dramatic change season of your whole life because in your 20s, all your anchor points are sort of up in the air, aren't they? Like All the things that... The big questions that anchor you down and give you stability are, are unanswered. Like, who am I? What will I do with my life? Where will I live? Who will I spend my life with? Is anybody going to notice me and value my contribution? And for me, when I was in my 20s, I wasn't really robust enough to deal with all of that. And a lot of the time, I really did just feel totally lost in my 20s and overtaken by the anxiety of all of that. They, you know, they were pretty rough times when those struggles for me were really active and alive and acute. And um, I spent four summers in my 20s working for the caterers at Wimbledon, which was amazing. Uh, we watched a lot of tennis and didn't do a lot of catering. But um, <laughs> I was there with one of my best friends, Fraser, who'd become a Christian while we were at uni together. And we were talking about it recently. And he said, do you remember the year we shared a room at Wimbledon? He said, um, in the night when you thought I'd gone to sleep, you'd be praying quietly. And sometimes I could hear you crying and you were saying, Jesus, help me. Please help me. And, you know, he's my best mate. So, like, it's not, it's not hard for us to talk at this kind of level. And I said, gosh, yes, like, I do remember that. I said, mate, I, you know, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't mean for you to have to listen to that. How did that make you feel? And he said, well... At the time, I thought, maybe you were cracking up. And uh, I said, what do you think now? He said, what do I think now? He said, when I look at your life, I think God heard and answered every one of those prayers. Do you know they were prayers of desperation? They were maybe the most important prayers I ever prayed in my life. And I found what Paul found, that in the times of greatest need... If I cry out to Jesus, he comes and he stands near to me and he gives me strength. He does. And if you call out to Jesus in the middle of your weakness, he'll come to you. He'll come and stand at your side, as Paul says, and there is unbelievable strength and courage that flows as a result. Strength and courage for, you know, for weak people like me and weak people like you. This is what Paul's saying. How can you navigate big change seasons in your life well and face them with courage? Four great truths that can give you the courage you need. Life is a struggle. He says death and loss are a journey into something. God's goodness in your life can't be stopped. And in the end, you only need one thing. Jesus with you in it all and through it all. Why don't we just pray and you know, ask God to, to do this for us? And for you guys as a church, as you go through this change season, let's just pray. Why don't you just open your heart up to God in this moment? Maybe just open your hands. It always helps me. Just as a way of saying, God, I'm open to you in this moment. Yeah, Lord, we just want to say thank you for the power and the beauty of your word. Oh, Lord, what a gift it is. And Holy Spirit, we do just want to pray that you would make these things come alive for us, Lord. This is stuff that can feed us and sustain us for a lifetime. And, you know, these are truths that can carry us even through death itself and out the other side into that new creation life that we were talking about. And Holy Spirit, I'm praying that you would take 
these beautiful, powerful truths and you would put them into our hearts in a really, really deep place. And I'm praying especially that you would help us to stand on these things in those changed seasons and in those testing moments. Please, make them come alive for us and help us to find that they are solid ground beneath our feet. Please. Thank you, Lord. We're so happy, Lord, to give ourselves over to you and to entrust ourselves to you and to surrender ourselves to you in changed moments. And we're so happy, God, to surrender ourselves into your love, God, and say, do us good, please, in all things and through all things. And we're asking all this in Jesus' name. Amen.